Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a great pleasure it is, as always, to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who played 214 AFL games. He almost reached 100 goals, but the one thing he did do is he redefined how we look at Ruckman in the modern day game because he became one, and I'm sure... He's going to explain that if he knows what the explanation is. His name is Sean Grigg and he's in the studio. Sean, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult one to explain because I think we're all still trying to work out how you became a ruckman. Do you sort of sit back and pinch yourself and say, gee, I didn't ever think that I'd finish up my career like that? Absolutely, yeah. And I was sort of probably getting to the stage of my career where I was plateauing a bit and um, we had some young guys coming up, um, you know, some young, exciting talent that, um, you know, was probably going to go ahead of me. And, uh, yeah, that role, yeah, sort of got thrown my way and I was able to reinvent myself a little bit and hang on for a couple of years. Did it convince you that the role of a ruckman is a little bit overrated or did it convince you that they are super talented and they've got great endurance? Which way did it tip you? Nah, I have great respect for them. Um, yeah, it was it was a hard hard gig, but one that I had a lot of fun with. And um, Damien Hardwick gave me you know, a lot of freedom and to play the role and how I wanted to. We'll talk more about the particular year and that, f- that famous year for the Tigers uh, later on in the program. How are you travelling now after retirement? Was it a wrench to leave the game? Oh, probably, yeah. I wrestled with it for three or four weeks uh, about, yeah, leaving the game and can I keep going and, you know, have all different thoughts and emotions. But once I came to the realisation with uh, the doctors and physios and myself that I couldn't get back to being good enough to play at AFL level and contribute to what I needed to, then it became an easier decision and more relief. When you've been a, a young fella coming up through the ranks and essentially one of your only jobs or possibly your only job has been playing football and it does come to an end. A lot of the guests on this program have said it happens so abruptly. One minute you're there, the next minute you're not. Did you feel that? Yeah, I did. Uh, and it's funny because all the older play- players you play with, you you always hear them say, you know, you'll know when it hits you. And mm. um, and I always sort of, I was pretty lucky. I was pretty durable and I didn't miss many games or training sessions. And I always sort of shook my head at that and thought, nah, it's not going to happen to me. Um, I'll be able to you know, call my own time and, and those sorts of things. But yeah, it, your body, I played there 13 years and um, over 200 games. So my body just had to, you know, something had to give. And yeah, it was um, in my knee. So yeah, eventually caught up with me. What's the one thing that you miss most about being involved in AFL footy at the top level? Yeah, it's just the locker room. Yeah, uh, a lot of people say it, but you know, it is. Uh, I still feel only twenty or twenty-one in my mind because you hang around with all these young guys all the time, 
And it's one thing I do miss, you know, after a game when you sit down and you, know, you just you sing the song and have a chat about what happened in the game. And for, the, for that 20 or 30 minutes, you can just totally just kick back and, and relax. And yeah, that, that's probably the thing that I miss the most. On the other side of the coin, what's the thing that you miss the least? Oh, as I got older, it was the little, the little things that you had to do to get yourself right, whether it was the little rehab things, you know, keeping your core strong or strapping your ankles every day. Those things become a bit tedious for me in the end. And, you know, as you get older, you need to do those things more often to, to keep your body sound. So, yeah, it was just the little, the little day-to-day things that you need to keep your body and mind um, fit to play. How about meetings? Because that's one thing that the modern-day footballer, when I speak to them, say, it's just bloody endless meetings all the time. And it's almost um, paralysis by analysis in football these days. Yeah, we, we have a lot of meetings, but at Richmond, they were a lot of fun. We always started meetings with, um, you know, some clips of showing guys strengths or, uh, or something funny they've done, or Damien Hardwick's quite comical. He'll, he'll have a, take the mickey out of one of the players or himself or the staff. So, uh, Richmond, it, it was, they were a lot of fun. Um, the meetings didn't, didn't get to me. Is that a key to what Richmond's been able to do? That levity that is there, because it is a serious business and, Careers hang in the balance, but it seems like, you know, Jack Higgins telling jokes out there and it just seems those moments of light and shade are important in football clubs to just relieve the pressure a little bit of the situation. Absolutely. And the end of 2016, when we had a horrific year and got smashed by the Swans by 100 points, we sort of sat back and we didn't enjoy what we were doing. We, we weren't having fun coming in. Um, we sort of fell out of love of the game and we really went back to our roots, our grassroots when we were younger and you know, in that early 2017 preseason and and just sat down and spoke about why we fell in love with footy and, you know, where you grew up and who you played with and was it school or your local club. And we wanted to bring that fun and excitement back then to the Richmond Footy Club uh, because that's how we first started is we loved the game and we're lucky enough for it to be a job, but we didn't want to get ground down into into rocking up thinking it was a job. So... Um, that was an important step for us to to shed some light on where you came from, why you love footy, who you played with, and let's bring some of that to what we're doing now. And you spoke about Dimmer also having those moments of light and shade in the meetings. I dare say a couple of years previously, he's always had that sense of humour, but he reassessed the way that he was going about his job. Did you see the change in him evolve over that period? Yeah, we did. Yeah, he it was well publicised. I think he went away after 2016 with his family and his wife and and Danielle sort of sat him down on the holiday and just um, met, said, you know, where's my husband gone? You've, you've changed, you know, you ride the roller coaster of win-loss and, you know, this, if the footy season goes bad, then, you know, you're down in the dumps. And so he wanted to turn that around and it was a real eye-opener eye probably for him. But then for us, for him to be able to translate that to the whole club and the whole playing group, that was a big eye-opener for us. I know it's an impossible question to answer, Sean, but had that change not happened in the coach, do you think 2017 would have turned out the way that it did? Probably not, to be honest. Yeah, I think for us to have that bad year, because after playing finals, the three previous, I think, yeah, it, we probably covered over some cracks if we just kept going the way we were. And you probably think that you're really close, but we weren't. We, we didn't make a, a dent in the finals those previous three years and sort of bombed out a little bit in 2016. And yeah, really made us sit back and assess where we're at and what we need to do and the game plan that we need to win and all those sorts of things. 
We'll talk more about 2017, the whole year and the, the celebration of what happened on that day. But let's fast forward 12 months from then. Was 2018 the one that got away? Was it just one bad day? Oh, yeah, when you look back on it, it probably, it probably was. We had a great year. We played some awesome footy pretty much all year, really. Um, and we're really confident that our footy was good enough from kicking on from 2017. We, we thought we improved and we had that belief that if we bring that manic pressure that we were renowned for, that it was so powerful because it was in our control to do and no opposition could take it away from us. And, and it was really, you know, it brought a lot of confidence and momentum for us. And yeah, for that, for that night that was sort of equal, we didn't bring that manic pressure as much as we would have liked and Collingwood they were unbelievable as well that night. So the two th- things aligned and, you know, if you're off a little bit in a prelim final, you'll get done. Did you stand there with your mouth open when Mason Cox is just jumping and catching everything that comes inside the 50 and think, <laughs> how could this be happening? I was checking the Collingwood trainers actually to see if they'd had super glue in their, in their pockets, <laughs> putting it on his hands because the big fella was clunking everything. And I think uh, Jack Rewalt at quarter time, he said it publicly that he sort of went up to Coxie and sledged him and, uh, and told him that his uh, his hands were there to mark the ball because he dropped a few early, and mm. um, the rest is history. He went on and took nine, I think eight or nine contested marks, and yeah. won the game for him. How long does the pain of something like that prelim in twenty eighteen stick in your guts for? Yeah, for me, it was only probably you know watching the grand final and West Coast celebrate, and then us going back to training. It really, it really stuck in our gut the opportunity that was gone because the year before we felt it. And a lot of people say to me, oh, you must be satisfied that you've won a grand final and, you know, you'd be happy that you've walked away winning one. And yes, that's right. But on the other hand, you've won one and you know what it's like. You want more. And for me, I felt that if I didn't taste that feeling of success, then anything else was a failure. Mm. Because once you've been to the top, it's something that you can't describe. I get shivers now talking about it, but you just want to get back there. Yeah, it does, and it was a great opportunity for us to win it, and that's what it was, an opportunity gone. And We'll talk more about the grand final and the year a little bit later in the program, but let's go back to where the journey all began for you. As a young fellow, when you were kicking the footy around, who did you imagine yourself to be? Who did you barrack for? I was Essendon, uh, but I also loved Wayne Carey as well. So, yeah, I grew up yeah, in Linton, which is about half an hour out from Ballarat, and we had... We had about 10 acres, so we had, you know, the footy goalpost set up and a footy oval, and I lived in a small country town with a lot of family, cousins, and I was, I was the youngest, so, um, which helped me in the long run because I was the one getting pushed around and not getting many kicks and, you know, getting steamrolled and all that sort of stuff, but, yeah, I loved it. Did you follow local footy as well as the Bombers? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Once we moved into Ballarat, the town itself, we joined a club called Redan Football Club, um, and I'd go to the footy every week, you know, with my brother and a couple of mates and family. And I'd look up to those guys more than what I would for AFL people um, because you were so close to them. You know, I, I remember watching them run out and we'd stand behind the goals waiting for the footies to get kicked and we'd run them back as quick as we could for them. Or if the opposition had had done it, we'd take our time and try and wait, you know, just try and help <laughs> the club that little bit and go into the rooms and sing the song and all that sort of stuff. It was uh, it was a great place to grow up. Did you see any young blokes coming through Redan who eventually went on to make their mark in the game? Um, not until a bit later on when Isaac Smith came through yeah. as a mature age. Um, that was quite funny. He played in a twos premiership with my brother at Redan. 
and he was a knockabout sort of lad, Isaac, that was just at Ballarat Uni. And then he progressed to play in the seniors for Redan in the Ballarat Footy League, won a flag and then went off to the VFL and won a couple of flags and then off to Hawthorne for three. So yeah. um, it was great to see him come from where he was to where he is now. And I think he'd only played a handful of games for North Ballarat. I, I called that game um, when he won the flag and you could see that there was something about him. I don't think any of us suspected that we would see a career the likes of which he's produced though. Yeah, I think it, just a player like Isaac, the higher... The great is the better sort of he he will play. You know he's got those attributes. He's such a great runner and a great great long kick and can link up, get three or four possessions in a chain. And I think sometimes in country footy that can be tough. But as you as you progress to the better skill levels, that the game suits him and he's he's had an awesome career. How many layers did you wear when you went to watch Radan playing? Because yeah. having seen a few games in Ballarat, you need to be uh, reasonably insulated. A lot. I remember wearing a hoodie. Uh, a few times under my footy jumper when I was playing down there and, and even a garbage bag that dad put on me um, under my footy jumper as well. But it was something now, I look. sometimes, I, you know, you're training in the cold here in Melbourne during the day and we're rugged up in our skins and tights and you go up there and this is freezing. But then I, yeah, the, the, the conditions that I trained in in Ballarat when I was young and probably should have been vulnerable to those conditions, I didn't care less. Mm. But um, yeah, so I think I was a bit tougher when I was younger. I think there's a story. I think it involves Hugh McCluggage, who was playing underage footy and played at um, Eureka Stadium or um, Mars Stadium as it is now. I think he was caught up one end in the first half, actually came into the rooms and had pretty close to hypothermia <laughs> at half time. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It's, um, it can be cold, especially there. It's an open, open oval with um, a lot of high winds that are, that are very chilly. When did you start dreaming that the big time might be within reach? Probably when I, when I got invited to train with the Rebels. As an under-16-year-old, I thought that I, yeah, I'd watch footy on a Friday night and just wanted to wanted to do that. And it wasn't until yeah, I, I got training with a bit more serious that uh, that's it's, it's something that I wanted to do and started to get picked in a few rep teams and yeah, and go and go from there. So it wasn't probably until yeah, year ten. So then all of a sudden the word gets around, and normally it's not just one club; it's a few. You finished up with Carlton, but. Who else was interested at the time? Yeah, well, I, I thought I was going to Adelaide um, at, at pick 14. I remember that they, they were pretty keen, and which I, I was sort of happy with. Mum and Dad wanted me in Victoria if we could have a choice. As parents tend to do. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, then pick 14 came, and James Seller, who was touted to go in the top 10, had fallen through, and he was a local boy in Adelaide. So they took him, uh, which... Which was a bit of a shock for us, and then uh, after that, yeah, I sort of thought Essendon or Carlton, and they had picks pretty pretty close together, and yeah, I was wrapped when the Blues read my name out. Well, we might explore that journey a little bit further when we come back on the other side of the break. The early steps of Sean Griggs' career in the AFL, which took him to 214 games, and of course the ultimate reward of a premiership. We'll explore that with Sean when we come back on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We are exploring the football career of Sean Grigg on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. The one thing early on that we knew about you was that you were quick off the mark. That probably attracted a few because I think you had some pretty good tests in the 20 metre sprint at the draft combine, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And that was a, probably one of the knocks on me leading up into the draft that teams 
and AFL recruits thought that I didn't have, and I probably didn't apply it to my footy. Uh, if that makes sense, I'd probably just assess my options rather than just take off. But, um, yeah, to prove a lot of recruiters wrong was nice. All right, so the Blues are the ones who come knocking. They're eventually the suitors. You're taken in the top 20, so you are highly regarded and you arrive. And Dennis Pagan's your first coach. Yeah, I love Dennis. Um, he, oh, I was a pretty brash, confident young kid. And to have Dennis as my first coach, uh, was, was looking back, was unbelievable because he instilled some pretty good lessons in me that I probably thought I was just going to roll on and you know, get picked in the team and, and just have a, have a nice AFL career, but it's, that's not how it is. And Dennis taught me pretty early that unless you put in the work and you deserve it, then it's not going to happen. Did you get any of the famous Dennis Pagan sayings along the way? I heard a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, there's a couple that are my absolute all-time favourites. And yeah, to have him as a first coach and how he gave me my first game as well, um, how I was called into his office and on a Thursday morning, and he asked me what time I ran around Princess Park in the preseason, and this was around 14, halfway through the year, and I told him my time. I think it was about 11.30 or 11.15, something like that. And he said, all right, son, well, if you beat your time now, this morning, you're in on Saturday. I thought, geez, right, eh? let's go. So Tony Liberatore was an assistant coach at the time, and he got on a push bike, and he had a stopwatch and timed me and was barking you know, orders at me to pick it up now and have a go now. And I was able to beat beat the time just and right to his word, he picked me. Do you reckon if you hadn't beaten the time, he'd probably still be in the team anyway? <laughs> I don't think so. I really? Reckon, I reckon Dennis would, would uh, yeah, he'd, he'd make me probably come back next Thursday and have another crack. It's interesting some of the motivation that coaches use and the way that they announce to players that they're going to be playing their first game. Did you see the one that Bevo did throughout the year about the birds in the hand? With, um, no, I didn't. <laughs> it was the most confusing thing you've ever seen in your life. But it's all psychology of footy these days, isn't it? What Dennis was doing was trying to motivate you to push yourself beyond the boundaries. Yeah, and he probably knew that that I, at my younger years I could probably get comfortable. I could complete all the training, but it was you know something that you need to do a little bit more to push yourself to the next level. And you know the training outside the club that can elevate you. And he probably saw that I needed those buttons to be pushed. It's been a difficult time for Carlton for a long time now. Who were your good mates at the footy club when you're going through and you're not winning that many games? Um, you lean on the support of those closest to you. Who did you become close to? Yeah, I lived with Sam Jacobs and Michael Jamison for a number of years, and we were sort of drafted together. Uh, Bryce Gibbs as well through that time, Cade Simpson, and you know some some of the older guys I looked up to, Heath Scotland, and he was such a, a hard worker. And Brennan Favola just would galvanise a room or a club just as he does now, and probably taught me a few valuable lessons. Um, how to have fun playing footy, but some some things probably not what to do as a professional athlete as well. And our captain was Lance Whitnell at the time too. So um, look, I had such a such a fun time in in those first couple of years, and yeah, they, they taught me some good lessons um, that that held me in good stead later on. He's largely misunderstood, Fev, isn't he? Oh, a great talent on the football field. We know that. When you sit down one on one with him, as I've done a few times over the journey. He's a terrific fellow, but it just seemed as though sometimes the switch got flicked in a direction that it shouldn't have been flicked in. Yeah, and as a young as a young player trying to find your feet, he was an unbelievable teammate. He'd always make sure, you know, if we were out with in with the team having you know a quiet beer or uh, a loud beer or or a meal, <laughs> he would always make sure you had enough money to pay for your meal, or um, he'd always look after the young guys. 
if just seeing if we're all right, if we needed anything, and you know, the stuff gets publicised of some of the mistakes he's made, and and fair enough, but a lot doesn't get publicised of how much of a good teammate he was and how much of a caring person he is. He was in the era where full forwards could still kick a lot of goals. Do you reckon we'll ever see a hundred game, a hundred goal full forward again, the way the game's played these days? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I'm not too sure. There's some incredible talent. Like if Buddy Franklin caught fire for half a season, he, he could get there or, you know, even Tom Lynch for Richmond, or I wouldn't mind to see Dustin Martin play full forward one out for a season. I reckon he could kick a lot of goals too. He could do anything, Dusty. Uh, we'll talk about that fantastic year he had in 2017 a little bit later on. What was your highlight of your time at Carlton? You said you had a lot of fun there. Is there one game that stands out in your mind? Oh, it was probably when the first time I played Collingwood with the big crowd, about 80,000, and Brennan Favola kicked eight or nine goals, and Carlton just fell over the line by a couple of points. And I kicked my first goal in that game. And you know, I look back on those me- um, fond memories and of a struggling club at the time and just how to enjoy wins. Like you have to, they're so hard you know, in an AFL. It's very hard to win a game of football. Uh, it takes a lot of things to go right. And I found that at Carlton that once you win them, you've got to sit back and enjoy that winning feeling. Cause they're, yeah, it's when you're losing, it can just become monotonous and you just roll in the next week and it's going to happen again. But yeah, once you win a game of footy, that's a, it's a good feeling. Did you feel that pressure from the supporters? Because Carlton is a club that over the years has expected success and had it in the great eras, but obviously this was a lean patch. And it's hard for supporters to accept that. Did you feel that pressure coming from the supporters that something had to change to relive the glory days? Yeah, probably not as a young player. I was probably oblivious, oblivious to, to, be, to be honest. I was probably just focused selfishly on myself and trying to make a career. When you're younger, you, you just worry about how you're going to get into the team and, and stay in there and help the team. But So I probably didn't realise the pressure from, from the supporters in the club, but they were always front of mind. You know, We had a lot of first-round draft picks, a couple of three number-one draft picks when I was there. And then, of course, we got Chris, Chris Judd in a, in a big trade as well. So they were always making moves to try and get there. As it turns out, you were going to go from one of the biggest clubs to another one of the biggest clubs. How did that all come about? Yeah, halfway through 2010, I was be- I'd been in and out of the team for a number of years through injury, uh, my own form, and the club had thought that other players were in front of me as well. So um, I-, I started I started to play some good footy in the back end of 2010. I cemented my place in the team, and I met with uh, the Richmond Footy Club at the end of the year, and I was really I was really tossing up whether because I'd just starting to make my mark on AFL and. Damien, when I met Damien Hardwick, he he was unbelievable. He's a he's a coach that the players really play for, and that really drawn drawn me to him. And he was going to give me the opportunity to become a good AFL footballer and a consistent AFL footballer. But it was up for me to take. So I think the uncertainty of coming back to Carlton and being in and out of the team and not knowing where my place was versus the certainty that. Um, Dimmer was going to give me the chance. I knew that. I took his word on that, that I was going to get you know half a season or a season to, to prove myself. And he had backed me in, so, yeah, I jumped at it. I think, Sean, the general perception is amongst the players or people who've never played the game that you look at the list and you say, oh, well, they've got a better list and this will be a better place. But the influence of the coach when you talk to players who swap clubs 
is astronomical. It's often about the coach and what he tells you and the belief that he instills in you that can tip you one way or the other. Yeah, and it's probably in my case as well. If you're, you know, if you're a big star free agent, you probably take into all those things consideration list. You know, where the club is on the ladder, what the coach is saying. But for me, it was I needed to. I wanted to establish myself, and I had belief in myself that I could be an AF, a good AFL player, but. I was just um, through some circumstances. I wasn't able to show that at Carlton, and yeah, I took Dimmer on his word that he was going to back me in to to prove everyone wrong. So, did it happen quickly when you made the move? Was it all you expected it to be at Punt Road? It was similar to Carlton. Uh, yeah, big big club with a lot of supporters, and Richmond were just going through a new facility build. Carlton had it a couple of years before that, so I knew the facilities were going to be you know state of the art at that stage, and to. Richmond's a vibrant place to be around and, you know, they had a good a good young list when I got there that I realised that they're going to be a good team for a long time because they had the likes of Jack Rewalt, who was young, Trent Cotchin, Dustin Martin, um, Dylan Grimes, Alex Rance, Dave Asprey, all these guys that were just young and starting their career. So once I got there and saw that what maybe we could become, it became exciting. It's hard to look long-term, though, isn't it? When you've got that collection of talent, you're almost itching for it to happen tomorrow, but it doesn't work that way in footy. It doesn't, and you're working incredibly hard. You think you're doing all the right things, and you always sit there at the end of a season or halfway through a year, and you go, why isn't it turning? Why isn't the wheel turning? I'm watching you know, Geelong just win game after game after game, and Hawthorne, and you're like, why can't we do that? We're training as hard as them, surely. It turns out what you're training or how you're connecting with your teammates, um, no matter how hard you're doing it or how much time you're putting in, it's got to be focused on the right areas. And I suppose once you go through the big transformation like we did from being an average team to being one of the best teams and consistent teams, you sit back and it's pretty clear on why uh, we were down the bottom of the ladder. Mm. And that transformation didn't look like happening as soon as a year before the premiership year. And it was almost shades of what happened at Geelong because they were nearly fracturing before they won that first flag in 2007. Mm-hmm. How close were the Tigers, the reappraisal came, but how close were you to just disintegrating? Well, well, personally, I remember sitting in the rooms at the SCG after that game in 2016 with my parents who travelled to Sydney to watch and they travelled to most games they just both work on the on the Ballarat Council and we're not well off or anything like that. And I remember just sitting in the rooms talking to them and saying, why do you bother? Like, why, why spend the money on flights and accommodation to come and watch this? Go on a holiday or um, do something for yourself because I couldn't, I couldn't see how it was going to turn. But then once we, yeah, once we got back, back to pre-season and got, got some clarity on how, what, what we want and how we want to play and, and a few little, just a few little things that, were tinkered, yeah, my eyes just opened up and just sort of thought, why not us? We'll talk more about the nuts and bolts of that and how it actually emerged in that famous year of 2017, a year that Tiger supporters will never forget when we come back on the other side of the break. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Sean Grigg on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. 
Hope you're enjoying the chat with Sean Grigg on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Live. So things are in danger of fracturing at the end of 2016. You said you came back and a few little things clicked into gear. It's a bit like a car. There, there only needs to be one or two parts that make a car run really badly and you make a slight adjustment and you're purring again. Did it feel like that at the start of the year? It just The whole club changed in the way we trained, the way we reviewed things, what we rewarded, and it just became a good, happy, fun place to be around. And sometimes when, when you get drafted and you get thrown into an AFL club, it's all about what you can't do or what you need to improve to improve yourself to be a, a good player, you know, whether it's ground balls or your opposite foot or your marking. It's always drilled into you what you can't do. I think it gets missed sometimes of what you can do and why you're in the position that you are as an AFL player. So Richmond really went back to that and said, well, what are your key strengths as a player? If you're a fast Dan Butler, Jace Castagna type, if you get the ball, run, take them on, because that's what you're good at. That's why you're here. If you make a mistake, well, so be it. We're not going to hang you for it or we're not going to crucify you. And it's the same with you know, Dustin Martin, I suppose, in you know, try and break tackles. If you get caught holding the ball, you know, the runner's not going to come out to you and, and give you a blast. And if you're a good kick, bash a hoolie, go for your kicks. You know, if you're a high-flying mark, go for them. And, and and it became a real thing of, right, I'm going to show everyone what I've got rather than I'm going to hide what I don't have. And, yeah, that became really contagious. In our meetings, you know, we reviewed the good of what's happened in the game a lot rather my previous experience through my whole career was you'd walk into a, a meeting and you'd sit down, you'd slump in the back of your chair and hope, God, I hope I'm not on the screen today. All my mates are going to see me. I'm going to be embarrassed for something that I've mucked up or should have done. Whereas we went into meetings going, oh, I hope I'm on the screen. Mm. I can remember that goal I kicked or the handball I gave off and someone kicked a goal. And it just became a really happy, vibrant place to be around and it probably solidified that the first five or six weeks we were undefeated. And that just gave us so much confidence and momentum that, yeah, this this is working. This is unreal. We're having fun. We're winning. But so, um, yeah, it would have been interesting to see what had happened if we'd lost the first four or um, if it got thrown out or, yeah, so we're lucky we won those few games. So when the engine begins purring and you win all those games at the start of the season, we're sitting there in the commentary box or the fans sitting in the stadium thinking, this is exhilarating to watch. It's exciting football to watch. Did it feel exciting to play that style of football? It did. It, we really made defence fun. When, when you get drafted and you know, you, everyone wants to get a kick and kick the goal and, and that's what makes you happy and you, know, you, you celebrate with the crowd and all those things. For us, we made putting on pressure fun. We made tackling fun, punching the ball out of bounce, all those little things that that aren't sexy, I, I suppose, football, but we, we really found great joy in making making that fun and putting the opposition under pressure for us. We enjoyed that. We, you know, If we saw an opposition play a fumble a ball when someone was coming at it, that was blood in the water for us. We knew we'd, 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 ha- we'd got them. And, and to do all those things was just effort-based. We, you, you didn't rock up to the game thinking, oh, you know, I hope I get five touches in the first quarter or I hope the ball bounces my way, then I'm going to have a good game. We could we could run out on the ground being confident and almost feeling like we already are playing well because all we could bring was effort and no one could take that away from us. So 
I, I could just bring effort and put as much pressure on the opposition as possible. If I hadn't had a kick in the first quarter, it didn't matter because those things weren't reviewed at Richmond. It was just how much effort you were putting in and, and how much pressure you put on the opposition. When you're playing that well, when things are clicking, I know the old saying is one week at a time, but it must be hard when you're playing the best footy in the competition not to let your mind drift ahead a little bit. Yeah, we went through some real lessons um, in the middle part of that year. We lost sort of three or four games in a row under a kick with some structural mistakes or you know, we sometimes we'd try and save the game with five minutes out and just go really defensive and teams would would um, would end up kicking a few goals and get over the top. So we learned some valuable lessons about just playing our way until the siren. We've got to keep taking the game on, keep trying to score. We, we want to win games, not save games. And then, then once we learned those lessons, and it was probably evident that we are going to play finals, and we did we did have a look a little bit forward and and spoke about, you know, why not us? Why, why can't we mm. make an impact? Why can't we win the flag? Um, you know, why does Collingwood or Geelong or Hawthorne, just because they've been in the finals previously, what gives them that right that they should just walk all over us? It doesn't. And once we sort of sat back and particularly as an older player, I sort of thought, yeah, why not us? Like it's our game plan stacks up. It's, it's on us to bring, no one can take it away from us. Um, if we, if we bring it and it clicks, then I think we can win the flag. So you arrive at September with a real chance of winning the flag and breaking the drought. The year before was the first year of the bye, and it helped the Bulldogs win the premiership, no question about that. Did you want to keep playing at that stage, or were you happy to have the freshen before the finals and then just feel as though you were 10 feet tall and bulletproof? No, I wanted to keep going. Um, momentum and confidence are such a, a big thing in footy and in if you could bottle it up and sell it, you'd be a bloody rich man, I'll tell you. So <laughs> um, I wanted to keep rolling, but we uh, we had a program that we we stuck to that was a pretty high-intense sort of training block. So, yeah, we, we wanted to keep the ball rolling. And you work your way through and you get through the prelim. What was the week leading up to the grand final like? Because it's as much about that experience that can dictate the way you handle the pressure of the situation on the day how was that week for you? Oh, unbelievable. One, the best week of my life. It was. We spoke about it early in the week. We're lucky enough that um, Damien Hardwick has been a part of winning teams in grand finals. Um, we had um, Blake Carousella, who had done the same. And, and they, they, they were, they've been through both scenarios where coaches or teams would say, right, you know, we've got to just stick to what we're doing. Don't let the outside noise get to you. We've just got to keep it in our own four walls. And they've also learnt, you know, grand finals are so hard to get to. Not many, not everyone gets there. You're very lucky and privileged to be there. Sit back and enjoy what you're going to experience because it's, yeah, the, the time of your life. And for us, we were having fun. Um, you know, we were embracing everything. And like the grand final parade, I remember, yeah, we were just sitting in the back of the car and waving to supporters. And I had um, my oldest boy with me at that time. And it was just a really fun time, whereas... Um, I, I can see the other side of it. it. It could have been a really stressful time if we hadn't been opened up to that experience. And if you wanted to keep it normal and inside your four walls, and it was going to rattle you because it's such a different week. You can't block it out. This is Richmond, yeah. one of the biggest clubs in the land. It's impossible to keep a lid on it because 
they were daring to dream. Every single one of the army was daring to dream. Yeah, it was it was quite funny. We had to Richmond had to barricade off our car park, you know, with temporary fencing. Yeah. Because you know, we'd come out of training and there'd be ten ten thousand people um wishing us luck and you know, if, if they let people get into the car park, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have left the club. It was unbelievable and the the captains run the day before the grand final, there was they had to lock the gates because there was just too many people to come and watch us train. And then the day of the grand final, uh, I remember a lot of the players, we drive our cars to the Punt Road precinct where our oval is and we walk over to the MCG and we kept that the same. And I remember we had a team of security guards walking us over. There was probably eight or 10 players walking over at that time. And just the support, we would have had, I don't know how many thousand people following us and chanting. And it was just, uh, gave us that much uh, momentum and energy. Like I was just ready to play then. Mm. Quarter time, things were shaky, but then things changed. When did you know? When did you allow yourself that moment of saying, yeah, this is ours? Uh, well, it was probably two different scenarios. It was probably in the second quarter when the game changed and around half time when it was even, I thought then if we if we keep this up and we're, we're settled into the game now, I can't see how they can beat us. If we So it was, it was up to us then and then in the last quarter when we started pulling away because I think we were about five goals up at three-quarter time and we'd lost a couple of games earlier in that year leading at the same time by the same margin so I was still a little bit nervous then but once we kicked the first couple of goals of the last quarter and what was that moment like when the siren sounded and all the euphoria that goes along with it do you remember it well or is it just a bit of a blur no I do I remember it I remember looking around it was a stoppage in in our back pocket, and I looked around, and Jack Rewalt was standing there. And I was like, Jack Rewalt standing in the back pocket has only got to mean one thing. The siren <laughs> is about to go because he does not go in the back line for anything. <laughs> so I knew then, because he, he's a very clever, smart footballer, and he would have been told from the bench or you know, the runner or a water boy or someone. He would have asked the crowd, probably. And, uh, yeah, the, when it got thrown in, the, pretty much the, the siren went straight away, and we're pretty tight, um, Jack and I, and he said that he was looking – to find me um, when he knew there was only 20 seconds left. And, yeah, once that went, it was just, yeah, it's something that you, I've likened it to becoming a parent because mm. it's until you actually go through it, no matter how many books you read or, you know, TV shows you watch about um, your partner going through watch what they have to, to to give birth to a kid, it just doesn't, it doesn't get you ready for the actual real thing. So I sort of likened it to that. Unless you've been through it, and experienced it, then then you know. But it's very hard to, to tell people who haven't. And last question on this, on the premiership. When it's been a long time since the club has won a premiership, inevitably the supporters will come up to you and thank you. And there will be those ones who can say, I can die happy now. Did you get that? Absolutely. And it was when we got back, starting into pre-season the next year, going down Swan Street in between sessions, you know, grabbing my coffee or having some lunch and people would just approach you in the street and just say, thank you, you know, with tears in their eyes or, you know, they would say, you know, my dad's 95 years old and never thought he would see another Richmond Premiership and, you know, to witness what, what we have as a family, like you've just brought so much joy. So the joy that we brought to other people, that was one thing that I sit back now and say, that's pretty cool for us to, it was an awesome feeling for us personally and being selfish, but I look at it and say, the amount of lives we impacted 
Richmond supporters who have, um, oh, they're just so passionate for the, for them, you know, people crying up to us in the street, just saying, thank you. It was pretty cool. It just goes to show the power of this great game. And that's why we love it so much because of all the emotions that it can drive. And when it's successful emotions, there's nothing like that feeling. We're just about out of time. We'll take our final break. And then I want to explore this Ruckman thing yep. because we still haven't spoken much about it. I want to f- find out where the genesis came from. Where was the spark that came to turn Sean Grigg into a premiership Ruckman, something that he never thought <laughs> that he'd be putting on his business card? We'll find out when we come back with our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Sean Grigg on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Do you remember the first moment when Dimmer or someone came up to you and said, got an idea for you, Sean? Yeah, I do. It was when Ben Griffiths went down with concussion early in a game and someone had to give Toby Mancurvis a bit of a chop out and I understand you're not putting... Jack Rewalt, Trent Cotchin, Dustin Martin, Alex Rance in the ruck, eh? So I knew I knew that um, – and I was happy to do it too because I really needed to reinvent myself and add something to the team. And at that stage of my career, I just wanted to win. I did not care what what it took. I just wanted to win. And it was something that really worked, started to work for us, that if I could nullify the ruck contest, we could get an advantage at ground level. And I sought a lot of advice from my old housemate, Sam Jacobs, we touched on on what Ruckman don't like or how can I get in a little advantage or all those types of things. And he was pretty open in trying to help me. And it was funny enough, I used him against him in the grand final. Yeah, <laughs> incredible. So your strategy was not so much to be thinking of winning the contest. If you could fight a draw and be disruptive, that was your goal? Yeah, and I did I did a lot of prep work into it. Um, I, I would do a lot of vision in the ruckman that I was coming up against and, and really identify where they like to hit the ball. And, and I would set our midfielders up in a centre bounce and really make the opposition's best hit to really juicy for him and, and leave a bit of space open that he would automatically see it and go, I'm hitting it there. And then I would either myself manoeuvre into that position or I would try and, if he's a right-handed ruckman, I would try and tangle up in his right hand and make him hit with his opposite. And then I would send one of our midfielders to that spot where I, th- I thought that the opposition would hit it. And more often than not, it, it would work for us because Ruckman were just so used to coming up against another big behemoth. Mm. When they come up against a shorter guy, they'd think, oh, I can get this hit away. My favourite hit, I'll be able to hit this to whoever um, uncontested. So I played on I played on their mind a fair bit with that and um, – was lucky. You know, change, change the rules a couple of times with the nomination because I, I wouldn't nominate for the ruck. I'd just verbally tell the umpire that I was going up and draw a couple of free kicks. So then change the rule then. You had to put your hand up and stop and nominate. And then after that, they changed the rule that the ruckman could grab it out of the ruck. Mm. So thanks to the AFL for ruining my career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you first went into the ruck and you're standing across the circles from the established ruckman, did you get the sense they're going... Shoot, how easy is this going to be? Yeah, and we would laugh at each other. I would give them a bit of a laugh and, you know, they would give me a wink and, and a laugh as well. And if it was against the, the top liners, you know, your Gorns, Grundies, Nat Nui's, then there's really nothing I can do. But against the second ruckman and some of the lesser likes or younger guys, I could 
torment them a bit or get in their head or pretend I was going to jump or, or jump occasionally. But it did backfire a couple of times with um, Big Nick Nat once over in at Optus Stadium where we went up for a centre bounce and I stayed down, obviously, and he tapped the ball directly over my head, ran onto it himself, grabbed mm. it, and then kicked it to full forward. <laughs> and I just ran off to the interchange straight away and said, Toby, get back on, please. Yeah. Uh, you're still having a kick these days? I had a couple of games with my local club, Redan, that we spoke about, my love of country footy, but yeah, only lasted a couple of games. And um, I'm just enjoying sitting back watching footy at the moment. And I'm not, I don't want to do a preseason. You know, I'm, I'm just enjoying being retired. And in retirement, you'll have that bond that we spoke about with your teammates. And you must be looking forward to that, that forever, that bond is never going to be broken. In 10 years' time or 20 years' time or 30 years' time, when you have a reunion, you'll be able to talk about that year and that day. Yeah, and the whole journey of the year and how we turned it around, how we've spoken about it, it's, it's pretty special that the bond that you can create you know, with people, they're just, it's, I liken it to family. Like the guys that you go, that you win a premiership with is, it's just like, you know, all your cousins or your brothers catching up at, catching up at Christmas. So it'll be a lot of fun. It's an incredible story and one that will be talked about for as long as they talk about grand finals, especially if you happen to be in love with the yellow and black, the best theme song, I think, in the competition, Absolutely. isn't Easily. it? Easily. Yeah. Easily. Sean, thank you for joining us and going through your journey. It's been great to sit down and chat with you. No worries. Thanks. Cheers. Sean Gregg joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you can join us same time next week when we have another great edition of the program and another great sporting story. We'll see you then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91